For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're studying through the book of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 3 primarily this morning. But the context for what we're talking about really starts in the end of John chapter 2, which we studied last week, but we didn't quite make it to this part of John 2. We read sort of a, a, a summary statement of what's going on with Jesus in John 2.23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. People were coming to see something unique about who Jesus is, and they were observing his signs, which he was doing. And we talked last week about the way that Jesus would use miracles. He would do these healings and these remarkable supernatural feats, but he would do them in connection with his message, that he cared for people and to heal people was something that reflects the heart of God and who God is, but also that doing this was a way of demonstrating his authenticity. He would teach, and then he would say, so that you know that God is behind my teaching, I'm also going to do this wherein then he would heal someone who was born as a paralytic, or he would give sight to the blind, do something that, you know, only God could do. And so that created a lot of tension for the audience, because you'd be looking and you'd be hearing what Jesus was saying, and a lot of it was countercultural. A lot of it was against the religious establishment of his day. But then he would do something that only God could do, and it would raise the question, why would God do this through this person if God didn't agree with his message? So he's attacking the religious establishment while demonstrating a miraculous power that could only come from God. And you could see why that would create a lot of confusion with people. Later in the book of John, we see a good example of this, John 9, 16 Says, therefore, some of the Pharisees who were the religious rulers of Jesus' day, they were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Even among the most staunchly religious uh, authorities, they were caught in this tension. How can he do these things and yet speak against so many of our traditions? Who is this person? And John gives us some insight into Jesus' perspective on this in uh, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It's a very interesting statement. He says, but Jesus, so these people were seeing his miracles and they were beginning to believe in him. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not intend anyone He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What he's saying is, Jesus knew as these people were impressed with him, and as they were impressed with his miracles, that he still didn't let that blind him from the reality of the fickleness of man's heart. That we may believe in his miracles. We could look at him and and believe this isn't a hoax. This is something that's real. These blind people are really being given sight. This isn't a a trick or an illusion. We can even believe that he's been sent from God, that God himself has, has come down in the flesh to teach us and to lead us, but that does not mean necessarily that we're going to follow him. Because the, the heart of the issue between us and God is that we're in rebellion against God. 
So it's one thing to believe that his miracles are true. It's another thing to believe that he is from God. But it's something entirely different to put yourself under his authority. And to say, I am a follower of God. God's priorities are my priorities. And it's not enough just to believe that he's from God. And it's not enough just to believe that his miracles are true. So then we get to John chapter 3. And we read in chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And do you see what Nicodemus points to immediately is those two things. We know you're from God, and we know that your miracles are true. He's come that far. And Nicodemus is an important figure. He's a Pharisee, which means that he is one of the most religious people on the face of the earth who's dedicated to following what he sees as the law of God in the Old Testament. He's a deeply religious man who strives to have his character and his life and his actions and everything oriented towards what he believes are the teachings of Moses and the the traditions of the rabbis. When it says he's a ruler of the Jews, we know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was an elite ruling class. There were Pharisees, but among the Pharisees, there were 70, there was a ruling council of 70. And Rome was ultimately in charge, but Rome liked to have some local authority. As long as they paid their taxes and didn't advocate for rebellion, they preferred that people have some ability to rule themselves. So being a part of the 70 means in the top class of the most religious people in Israel, he's in the top class with the most authority. There's evidence later in the book of John that he would have been super wealthy, which would make sense for somebody that was in such a position of authority and power. He would have been very politically powerful. This is one of the top, top guys for the religious establishment in the time of Jesus. And he's wrestling in an honest way. He's looking at this exactly the way you should look at this. He's saying, He's teaching against a lot of the things that I believe as a follower of Moses and as a, as a Jewish leader. He's attacking a lot of the traditions that we have. Yet, I can't say that he's contradicting the law of Moses because he does seem to follow what the Bible says, just not the traditions of, of, of the rabbis. And... When you look at the miracles that he's doing, there is really only one explanation. So it would make sense that he would, from a conscience standpoint, want to meet with Jesus and kind of talk about what's going on, try to understand better what's happening. And so he comes to Jesus as this extremely important person, this learned scholar of the Old Testament, and he offers an olive branch. He says, Jesus, clearly you're from God, and clearly your miracles are true. And how does Jesus respond? He responds in chapter 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a pretty weird answer, isn't it? 
it's not, doesn't seem very diplomatic. It's like, you know, <clears throat> is this the whole conversation? I mean, wasn't there at least something like, thank you very much, Nicodemus. I greatly appreciate your acknowledgement of my ministry or wonderful to see you, right? The answer is right back at him, you know, with a fairly confrontational statement that is also confusing. And, you know, this is what Jesus is saying. It's important that we see that. What has Nicodemus said? I believe in your miracles and I believe you're from God. And Jesus is saying, believing in my miracles and that I am from God is not enough. That's not enough. You have to be born spiritually also. It's important that you understand that the road that you are on, Nicodemus, that's a good start, but it is not where you need to end up. And Nicodemus, you have to understand, his job is essentially he's a lawyer, okay? As a scholar of the Old Testament, that was the law of the the land of Israel. So he is like a top politician, a top scholar, and a top lawyer. And Jesus comes at him with a relatively combative uh, answer. And, you know, what does he do? He takes up a fighting stance. I mean, he would have, Nicodemus would have reflexively engaged in lawyer mode, right? And he's going to start picking apart these claims that Jesus makes. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And so he asks a rational question, but you can tell there's sort of a, you know, he came with an olive branch to talk with Jesus. Jesus has confronted him and said, that's not enough. And now there's a little spar that's about to happen. And so Jesus hears that, you know, and, and Nicodemus is like ready to go. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah? <laughs> he says in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is like, I'm, I'm down first bar. Let's bar. And what, is, what he says still seems strange. But what he's saying is, look, you have to be born physically to enter the kingdom of God. And you have to be born spiritually. The water is physical birth. The spirit is spiritual birth. And I'm not just interpreting this. It becomes clear. You know, he's saying you need both. You need spiritual, physical birth. But you're not born spiritually alive. That's something else that has to happen as well. And he restates it in a clearer way here. He says, look, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying this is a fundamental truth. You need more than physical life. You need more than believing I'm from God. You need more than believing in my miracles. You need to be born spiritually. And he's talking to the top religious guy in the top field of the nation of Israel. And saying, you need to be born spiritually. That'd be hard to take, wouldn't it? It's very confrontive. But what he's saying is true. Paul writes about this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. He's talking about Adam in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Adam made that decision. God said, the moment you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And he was talking about spiritual death. And Paul says, because of Adam's choice... Sin entered the world and, and death through sin. 
So death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam, being the first man, brought spiritual death to the human race. And all of us who are descended from Adam, which is everyone, are now born spiritually dead. And this is Old Testament stuff here that Nicodemus should be aware of. Jesus says in in, in verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is just a helpful word picture. You know, in the ancient world, the wind was a bit more mysterious than it is today. Now we have high pressure and low pressure systems and we have some sense of why we have wind, right? But in the ancient world, it would be like suddenly your hair is standing up on end and it's just kind of like a bizarre experience that it's mysterious why this happens. Who could predict in the ancient world where the wind was going to blow next or how hard? And that's his point. He's just saying, look, I understand, Nicodemus, that what I'm saying, there's a mystery to what I'm saying to you, but it is also true. Nicodemus says to him, how can this be? And the sense of this, I think, is how can I, a man born and raised in Jerusalem, a Pharisee, a biblical scholar, somebody who has devoted their entire life to good behavior, to following the law of Moses, and to understanding the Torah, the Scriptures, how can I, if this is so important, how can I not know this? How can this be true that this, if I don't get this, how many people in Israel don't get this? You're saying that this is a fundamental piece of understanding the will and wisdom of God for the human experience, and I have never heard anything like this. How can this be? And Jesus doesn't let up. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? How can that be? How? You know, the teacher of Israel was probably, you know, a, a post. It was probably an office that he held. He was, you know, somebody who was considered a top scholar. Somebody who was in charge of making sure that everyone else properly understands the word of God. And so when Nicodemus says, if this is true, and I don't know it, How can it be true? Because I'm supposed to know everything. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's a problem. It's a big problem. Because what I'm saying is in the Old Testament. It's there. Genesis 2.17, God says to Adam and Eve, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day if you, uh, you eat of it, you will surely die. They knew that passage forwards and backwards. It was just as pivotal to their theology as it is to ours. And they knew that Adam and Eve didn't bite the fruit and die that day, physically. But what Genesis chapter 3 makes clear is that what happened was they became alienated from God. They died spiritually. And that the, the choices that they made would not just affect them, but every subsequent generation of humans that would be born after them. Nicodemus understood that. And so Jesus is saying, how can you then think that you have spiritual life when you're a son of Adam? You need to understand this. 
He goes on in verse 11 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. You believe I'm from God and you believe in my miracles, but you're not believing the most important thing. Jesus is saying, I'm not giving you a theory. I am not a fellow scholar who's giving you my interpretation of what this means. You've never dealt with anyone like me before, Nicodemus. I was there in the garden when man died. I am an eyewitness, he says. And I have come to testify about the truth of the spiritual death of man. This isn't a theory. This isn't a school. This is an eyewitness account. I saw it happen. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He says this spiritual death and rebirth issue is faith in God 101. This is the beginning point of a spiritual walk with God, of a relationship with God. And if you don't grasp this, you can't move forward on your spiritual journey. This is step one. Understand that you are spiritually dead and that you need God to give you spiritual life. He says in 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. Now, granted, it's confusing to understand what he's saying, but he's going along and he, what he's doing is he's arguing for the authority that he has to make these claims. He's saying, I'm the only one that has come directly from heaven to explain things. Everyone else you've talked to, even Moses, even the writers of scriptures and the prophets, they had an intermediary. I am come from heaven to directly tell you the truth of the spiritual predicament of the human race. I'm a primary source. That's why what I'm saying to you, Nicodemus, is so important. He goes on and he gives him an example from the Old Testament. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And what he's doing is, is he's referencing this thing from Numbers. What happened was, as the people were wandering in the desert, they came upon a a bunch of snakes that were biting and killing people. And so, you know, you can imagine as a huge number of people are walking through the desert and getting struck down by poisonous snakes, you know, they cried out to God. And what God said is, okay, make an image of a serpent and hold it up high, Moses, and tell the people whoever looks at that image as they walk through this area, they won't be killed by the serpents. But they have to trust me you know, imagine putting yourself in that scenario. What it says in, in Numbers 2, uh, 21, 9, and Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, imagine how scary that would be. You're walking through the desert with your children and your spouse. People are starting to die because they're being bit by poisonous vipers. And God says, put this up and stare at it. Trust me. And you'll still be bit. 
You just don't die when you are bit. And you're like, is there an alternate uh, option? Look at the level of trust God is asking for. Risk being bit. And if you are bit, trust that the poison will have no effect as long as you trust me. And Jesus is saying, that's just like me. You've been bit. You're getting bit. Will you trust me? I've come from heaven to tell you guys you're all snake bit. Every last one of you has the poison of sin pumping through your veins, and you're doomed. You're doomed. But if you will entrust yourself to me, if you will turn to me and give your allegiance, your hope, your trust in me, you will not die. You'll have new life, an eternal life that can never be taken for you. And then he gets into probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, the one that you see at all the football games and all those things. But this is the context for this. And he says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world. God looked down and he saw all the pain and all the suffering and all the death, and he knew that man was doomed. And he knew he had to do something about it because he loves us. That he sent His only begotten Son, that God took Himself and came to dwell among us in the middle of all the pain and rebellion and evil and death. He made Himself vulnerable to the whims of evil men. He weighed right into the thick of where all the Evil and pain and hardship was happening, and he made himself vulnerable to it. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not whoever thinks Jesus' miracles are real, whoever's convinced, wow, God really works through him. That's not that's not it. That's not spiritual life. Not who thinks he's an authentic representative of God. Wow, God, this really is, you know, authentic teaching from the mind of God. That is not enough. This word believe is pistuo in the Greek, which is often used in terms of regarding as trustworthy or more literally entrusting oneself. As many as entrusted themselves to him, he gave eternal life. They looked at him and they said, my way doesn't work. My rebellion doesn't work. I am going to trust you, Lord, with me. You are my God. You and your ways are higher than my ways. And your truth is better and more meaningful than my truth. I am going to put down my rebellion and trust that you are good and that your opinion about who I am and who I should be is right.
We are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. That is the human condition according to our Creator. We are born into rebellion. And people sometimes like to say, well, you know, why do I have to pay for Adam and Eve's decisions? You know, Adam and Eve were born spiritually alive. They were born into a relationship with God, and they chose out. And we say, well, why can't we have that same choice? But we do. We're just born out, but have the same choice to choose in. The choice is still yours. It's just the vantage point of where you make that choice from has has changed. And the reason it's changed is because we are all connected as the creation of God. What we do, the choices we make as free will beings, do have an impact on each other. You cannot sin and have it only affect you. That's not how it works. We're connected. And the choices of our fathers and our fathers' fathers and going all the way back have an impact on who you are today. All the way back to Adam and Eve. So you still have a choice. Your choice has not been robbed from you. But rather than being in and choosing out, you are out. But you can choose in. If you will it. If you want to. Going back to Romans 5, 12 through 15, he says, Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. He says in 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of God by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound, Christ, abound to the many. You see what he's saying? Adam made a choice and it affected everyone. They were out. Jesus went and died and affected everyone. It gave them the opportunity to choose in. That's the power of Jesus' message and what he came to do. Now, we are born into a, a system, a born into a community, born into a world where everybody is born hostile to God. So it's no mystery, it's no wonder that so much of the world is hostile to the God of the Bible. And we're constantly told God is unreasonable, God is harsh, God is wrong, and he's not trustworthy, and we shouldn't follow him. Because that's the default setting of the human race. The default setting is be your own God. You decide what's right and wrong for you. You determine your own destiny. You And so many of us live that way. But we don't find peace. We don't find joy. We find emptiness. We find a hole. We try and we strive and we we look for different things that can make us feel right and make us feel good. We have this innate sense that there's something about who we are that's important. And that yet we are messed up and broken and not what we're supposed to be. God says he is the only answer to that dilemma. We were made to entrust ourselves to him, and when we do entrust ourselves to him, we are spiritually reborn. It's like we're a lamp. Now, a lamp 
if it's not plugged in and it can't shed light, is a very odd table piece, isn't it? It has all the potential to be what its designer created it for. It has all the ability to fulfill its destiny to shed light. It's designed very specifically to do that, and it looks very odd if, it's, if we don't understand the context of what it was created for. But if it never gets plugged in, it has no chance of fulfilling that destiny, that purpose. It's just an odd-looking piece of furniture at that point with a great potential that is never realized. Jesus is saying, we're born like this, and entrusting ourselves to him causes this. He's the source of spiritual life, and we're the lamp that can choose to go on our existence having never been plugged in, having never become what we were created to be, or we can be connected with him and let his light shine through us. And in doing that, we find the fulfillment of who it is that we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be spiritual beings. We are made by God to carry his spirit. But he will not force himself in. He goes on in 3.18 and he says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's saying, look, you are poisoned with sin. You're all under the judgment of God, every one of you. But if you choose me, you are cured. I'm the antidote to the poison. Will you please take the antidote and live? But if not, if you don't, you will surely perish because you're you're poisoned. The choice is yours. He says in 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We love our sin. We love being in charge. We love being our own God. And nothing is harder, nothing is more painful, nothing is more of a fight than coming to the end of ourselves and lowering our pride and admitting we are a creature rather than a creator. And as a result of that, many will refuse to see the truth of this. That's what Jesus is telling him. There will be many lamps that never get plugged in. Well, that's pretty offensive. I'm basically a good person. I mean, I've got my problems, but I can look out into the world and I can find lots of people who are living a much more immoral life than me, and you're telling me that counts for nothing? You're telling me that I'm spiritually dead? I object to that. That I need Jesus in order to have spiritual life? I don't like that at all. That seems very uh, narrow-minded and exclusive. Imagine how Nicodemus felt. 
Nicodemus was more righteous than any of us. He was more dedicated than any of us. He was living a life of moral, not perfection, but dedicated to striving for moral perfection at a level that most of us uh, couldn't get anywhere near. He was giving his money. He was teaching the Bible. He had worked so hard to gain the position and the authority that he had gained. And here Jesus is saying, if you don't entrust yourself to me, none of that means anything. Because you missed the first step. You missed me. I think that would have been very hard for Nicodemus to hear. The teacher of Israel, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, goes out to this carpenter's son from Nazareth, who's clearly got something going on, offers him an olive branch, and hears, dude, you're not even spiritually alive yet. It was offensive to him, and it's offensive to us. Maybe not the first time we hear it, but the first time we understand it, it is offensive, and it should be. Because at the heart of it is the truth. You are helplessly diseased and unfixable by anything other than God. But God does love you and does want to come into your life and is pleading with you to try something new, to trust Him. It's offensive, but it's also true which is what makes it so important. If it's not true, then wow, what a waste of time for everybody. But if it is true, how important would it be that we all, all of us, wrestle with this message? And here we have Jesus doing it again, knocking down our man-made notions of how God works. Who do we want God to be? We want God to be an overgrown version of us. We want God to tell us what the job is, to give us the hoops to jump through, and tell us what we need to do in order to earn his favor so that we can feel like we've accomplished something. And what God does, because he's not like us, is he says, there is no hoop, there is no work, you cannot earn it, your situation is hopeless. Unless you turn to me and trust me. And then no matter what you've done, no matter how evil you've been, no matter how much you've been in rebellion, and no matter who you've hurt, you can be forgiven unconditionally, guaranteed spiritual life, adoption into my family, and eternal life with me and all those others who make that same decision. He is not who we want him to be because if he were, then we would get some glory for ourselves. We could earn something. We could accomplish something. He says, no, I'm just going to give it to you. And you can't earn it. You just have to accept it. 
He's saying religion is not enough. Mental assent is not enough. Being a good person is not enough. Only trusting yourself, entrusting yourself to Christ. That's the only thing that's enough. And on the one hand, it's so easy to do because, you know, it's a transaction between you and the Lord in your heart that you can do right now. But on the other hand, it's very difficult because it requires surrendering the throne of your life, saying, I am not God, and he is greater than I am. Here we have a rich, educated, powerful, religious man who has enough integrity, even though everything Jesus is doing is sort of hacking at the root of the tree that he's in, has enough integrity to come to him because he sees something that can only be explained that this person is from God. And Jesus shows him the path. Now, that path would be especially difficult for him, wouldn't it? It would require a level of humility that someone in his station uh, would probably find in short supply. But it is the path. It is the truth. Jesus is showing him the way, and he's pleading with him. Look at all the way that Jesus goes out of his way to say, look, I am from heaven. I am a primary source. This was in the Old Testament. Moses showed it to you. Believe. Jesus isn't like, oh, you're a Pharisee. It's too late for you. Go the other way. I've come here to find low people. That's not the case at all. Next week, we're going to see In the next chapter, he goes and he talks to the woman at the well, a poor, immoral, hard-hearted Samaritan woman. She's the polar opposite of Nicodemus in every way, right? And he does the same thing. He shows her the path, and he pleads with her to see the truth. Because to him, the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus are in exactly the same boat. Which, you know... Both the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus surely would have had a hard time seeing that. But when you see it spiritually from the vantage point of God, they're in exactly the same boat. And John, our author, sets these two examples right next to each other for exactly that reason. Why do we have Nicodemus right next to the woman at the well? Because the point is clear. Everybody needs the same thing. No matter what country you're from, what culture you're from, your education, your socioeconomic status, no matter how many hours you volunteer at the shelter, no matter how many good deeds you do, or no matter how wicked you are, selfish you are, immoral you are, we all need the same thing. Jesus Christ. To entrust ourselves to him. There you have John 3. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for for loving us and not leaving us to wallow in darkness. Thank you for bringing us spiritual life. 
we know that we don't deserve it. We know that none of us here have earned it. None of us have done something extraordinary. You are what's extraordinary. And we just ask God that we could be used by you to help others see you. Because we know for so many, if they would actually have an honest picture of who you are, it could change everything. We ask for the boldness and the opportunity to do that in your name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.